This is ARRL's Eclectic Tech, a bi-weekly look at the technical and scientific side of amateur radio with your host Steve Ford, WB8IMY. Eclectic Tech is brought to you by ICOM. ICOM, for the love of ham radio, is about the passion for an incredible hobby. Visit ICOM in the community webpage at www.icomamerica.com forward slash community. I'm with Bob Allison, WB1GCM, the assistant ARRL laboratory manager, and he's also our product review test engineer. And Bob is the guru of all things long wave. Right, Bob? I mean, you go low down. Yes, I do like to listen down there. There are some interesting things to hear from time to time, and it's always worth exploring. If you like electromagnetic waves, you've you got to be curious of what's going on down there. Yeah, I call it the basement of radio, certainly the basement of amateur radio. Yes, it is, and there are users down there. Well, now, we have our new 2200-meter band. I'm exempting our new medium wave band, since that is not long wave as such. But uh, does 2200 fit into that uh, category? Yes. If we're talking about uh, long wave and low frequencies, we're talking about the radio spectrum that entails 30 kilohertz to 300 kilohertz. And so our 2200-meter band falls between 135.7 and 137.8 kilohertz. And in that band, we're allowed to uh, transmit with an effective rated power of one watt. It doesn't sound like much, but that one watt can travel very far if you have an effective antenna. And if you can radiate a watt, you're doing okay, and it's enough for you to get on the band and make some contacts, provided that there are other people operating at the time. Yes, and especially with digital modes, I understand. Well, there's a couple modes that, that are used on uh, the lower bands such as uh, JT9 and uh, FT8 and also Whisper. That's right. Now, you've been listening to uh, long wave stuff for years and years. I, I think a lot of people, for example, don't realize that there are actually, or at least there were, broadcast stations down there, right? Yes. You see, long wave has an um, interesting characteristic, and in, in that radio waves tend to follow the surface and the contour of the Earth. So it's, it's a surface wave. Some people call it a ground wave. And think of this. So radio waves, the higher in frequency you get, the more radio waves behave like light. In fact, light is an electromagnetic wave. And light bends around corners for short distances. And you go down lower in frequency, radio, radio, radio waves tend to uh, bend around things a little bit better. The lower and lower and lower you get, the better that happens. The better radio waves go over mountaintops, ravines, through the ocean, and through the earth. In fact, b- below 50 kilohertz, submarines use frequencies that are in the lower area of the long wave spectrum. And frequencies below 50 kilohertz can penetrate ocean depths of up to about 500 feet. So submarines use long waves, and so do people that like to explore caves. The only method of two-way radio, if you're underground exploring caves, is to use long waves because the electromagnetic waves go through the Earth. Of course, you, you couldn't try that on 70 centimeters and bring a, a handheld down below in a cave. It just wouldn't work. But 
Long waves do work, interestingly enough. And hams have been dealing with long waves pretty much since the beginning, haven't they? Well, that's where they started, basically. Uh, very, very long waves. They didn't even think about what frequency they were actually operating on. It was just the fact that they were creating electromagnetic waves. And then they started using tuned frequencies and very, 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 very large antennas. In fact, most of the marine traffic, uh, ship-to-shore communication, ship-to-ship, all happened below 500 kilohertz um, at one time or another. In fact, the very early experimental days of radio broadcasting took place between two and 300 kilohertz. And they are still there. At least there are some long-way stations there, I think. Want to say, principally in Europe? Am I? Is that correct? Yes, Europe and Asia, ITU regions one and three, have frequencies allocated to long wave broadcasting. I believe it works out to be to be about uh, 150 to 280 kilohertz. Some of the European stations have gone dark, and have been replaced by internet feeds. But there are many other countries that use long waves. And specifically, the reason being is because that long wave signal can penetrate an entire country in Europe. And large regions of uh, area can be covered in uh, Asia as well. So it's very practical to have one station cover a very, very large area on a long wave. The disadvantages are, of course, the very, very long and tall antennas that are required, and also the amount of power that's needed. But basically, uh, the radio waves follow the surface of the Earth, and typically the range expected is about 1,200 miles. Now, my understanding is you have monitored uh, European log wave here in the United States yourself. Is that right? Oh, yes. Uh, the best time to do that is in the winter months for us here in the Northern Hemisphere. So the months of um, November, December, and January are optimum. And um, there's, there's less absorption from the uh, D layer because the D layer is gone in the ionosphere for a longer period of time since the uh, daylight isn't around. And so at night, right around midnight, during winter solstice time, is actually the best time to try to listen to long waves. Summertime, not as much. And uh, I used to listen to a number of long-wave stations. In fact, I was a novelty guest on one of them years ago. It was called Atlantic 252, 252 kilohertz. The station was located in Ireland. And they used to come into uh, my location quite nicely with a simple inverted L antenna. And I would listen to them, and I would call up their morning drive time and be a novelty guest since I was across the pond. And they loved it. <laughs> Are they still on the air? No, they're, they're not. Um, that, that station went dark. Uh, it's, it's been on and off a few times. It was just a, simply a, a monstrous trans, transmitting facility. Was, I believe it was about 500 kilowatts into a very, 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 very large antenna rate. Just incredibly expensive to maintain and keep on the air and pay for the transmitter belt. And you could really um, do the same thing with an Internet feed, unfortunately, for much, much less money. Nonetheless, though, uh, the broadcast station is reliable in case in times of emergency, 
if the internet went away, those broadcast stations are incredibly important. Now, Bob, what about the loafers, as they call themselves? They've been around for years. Yes, that's right. And uh, there's a low-frequency band that I actually played around with for a little while. And uh, it's on 160 to 190 kilohertz. Um, It's a Part 15 band. That means you don't need a license. And you're allowed to transmit with one watt of power with an antenna that cannot exceed about 50 feet in length, five zero, 50 feet in length. So the most practical thing is to put a transmitter right at the antenna and have the ground system right there, radial spread out, 50-foot antenna. In that 50-foot antenna, you'd have a very large loading coil to make up the length. And uh, some of these loafers have gone coast to coast. In other words, in New Jersey, a uh, California loafer was heard and vice versa. So they kind of, um, they kind of scouted the way for the uh, amateurs for the 630-meter band and the 2,200-meter bands. Those loafers proved with their very low power and uh, really inefficient antennas that low power can work on those bands, and uh, apparently so, because there have been many successes on 2,200 meters and also 630 meters. I've been amazed at what some of the guys down on 2,200 meters have been able to accomplish. There aren't many hams operating down there yet, uh, but those that are have done some amazing things. Yes, it's, it's worth a try if you um, have some time. You can wind a very large loading coil, let's say, on a plastic garbage bin. That plastic garbage can, round cylindrical object, can act as a um, loading coil form. You can wrap wire around that many, 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 many times. There are articles about that out there. And with that, and uh, maybe loading that into uh, a T antenna of sorts, if you have a 160-meter dipole, short out the transmission line, use it as a T, feed it against ground, stick in the loading coil, and you might just get on the air. Bob, is it correct that if you want to operate on 220 meters, you need permission or clearance from uh, a council, a utility council, is that right? Yes, that's correct. You need permission from the Utilities Telecom Council. They're concerned that amateur transmissions in these bands will interfere with uh, power line communications, uh, switching on and off power, etc. So you have to go to a PLC website and fill out an application that contains your latitude and longitude. It's uh, very simple to do, and to do that, you can go to the ARRL main page Click on the little blue panel on the top. It's called Technology. Click on the Technology panel. And on the Technology main page, you'll see uh, an application hyperlink in blue that will bring you right to the application process so you can fill out the application. And you'll have to wait a couple weeks for them to get back to you, but they'll send you permission to operate on those bands. And it's just to protect the, the grid system in the United States. My understanding is they rarely deny permission. Is that correct? That is correct. Bob, what about the average ham, like myself, who has an HF transceiver that can tune, well, in my case, I believe down to uh, 300 kilohertz. If, if I just wanted to eavesdrop on some long wave activity with that radio, is that possible? Absolutely. 
And, and the best part is you don't need a really super duper crazy, crazy long antenna to do so. In fact, inefficient antennas work well down there. Reason being is because the noise floor is so high. The man-made and the atmospheric noise is much higher below the AM broadcast band. Then it drops off uh, the higher in frequency you go. But um, that noise uh, makes listening difficult. So there's no sense in having the absolute best receiving antenna. You just want one that can pick up the noise floor, the man-made noise, the atmospheric noise. If you hear that coming in well, then your antenna is working. So many hams use a ferrite rod antenna, the same kind that you find inside of a maybe a little AM broadcast radio. That, a preamp, and a simple crystal detector hooked up to a long piece of wire can pick up some natural sounds of the Earth um, and the universe. So there are experimenters that go below 30 kilohertz with simple crystal detectors and antennas such as ferret loop antennas, and they can pick up natural sounds such as morning chorus, uh, something that sounds like a bunch of crickets, all sorts of crazy whistlers. There's all sorts of strange atmospheric and uh, ionospheric noises that go on down there. Thinking about the uh, HF transceivers again, Bob, especially in your capacity as the product review tester, what is your opinion about the performance of those radios? If you look at the data tables of amateur transceivers, you can see the sensitivity of the receivers on those amateur bands. So look at that, and uh, if it can pick up anything more than, let's say, minus 107 dBm, that's a microvolt. That's a good base point for that band. You may not even need that much sensitivity. But a at least a microvolt of sensitivity is good. Many transceivers do better than that, and they have better sensitivity. So many of them work quite well, but please consult the QST product reviews for sensitivity figures in the data tables. So they may be able to use these to pick up, say, some of the long-wave broadcast stations? Oh, absolutely. I used to do that all the time. There are manufacturers that make transverters for HF amateur transceivers. What they do is they just simply convert 2,200 meters or 630 meters to 160 meters. So your radio looks like uh, it's working on 160, but it's actually on those other bands. And they provide about 50 watts of RF output. Of course, you're not allowed to um, radiate 50 watts. You have to keep it to 5 watts maximum on 630 meters and 1 watt maximum uh, effective radiated power on 2,200 meters. And I think we've reviewed some of those, too. Absolutely. You can see those in QST Product Review. Check the ARL website for that. Yes. Thank you very much, Bob. You're welcome, Steve. If you follow my eclectic technology column in QST Magazine, you might remember a discussion about a year or so ago concerning next-gen TV. At the time, I was describing a new development for over-the-air television that was coming in the near future. Everything is always in the near future, just like nuclear fusion, right? Well, this time, the future apparently has arrived. If you're receiving broadcast TV right now, you're watching what is called ATSC 1.0. That's the format 
and that supports multiple channels in each data stream and high-definition signals with a resolution of about 1080 maximum. Remember 15 years ago when everybody had to convert to digital TV? You either purchased a new digital TV or you bought an inexpensive analog-to-digital converter. It was pretty controversial at the time. For the TV stations, the conversion wasn't voluntary, if you remember. By an FCC-mandated deadline, they had to stop sending analog signals and switch entirely to digital. Not everyone was happy, especially the TV stations, but in time, everyone got used to it. But now we live in the digital TV age, and technology, of course, marches on. A TV with merely 1080 resolution is kind of passe. Now the revolution has moved to ultra-high definition, better known as 4K. Cable providers and streaming services are starting to offer 4K programming, and understandably, a number of TV stations want in on the action. That's what next-gen TV, technically known as ATS 3.0, is all about. It's 4K resolution over the airwaves with some other goodies thrown in. As it concerns the TV stations and the FCC, however, things are different this time around. The jump to next-gen TV is strictly voluntary this time. Your local TV station doesn't have to abandon the current system and you don't have to purchase a new television. But next-gen TV is not backward compatible with ATS 1.0. You can't receive next-gen signals with your current ATSE 1.0 TV, in other words. If your favorite TV channel decides to switch to next-gen, it's bye-bye. Unless you own a compatible TV, of course, or possibly a converter. Some TV stations in the major markets are actually already broadcasting next-gen. According to those who follow these things, this will spread to stations in many of the top 50 metropolitan areas by about the end of this year. TV manufacturers like Sony, Samsung, and LG are saying they're going to have next-gen compatible TVs for sale just in time for Christmas. Expect to hear a lot of hype about next-gen in the coming months. I've seen a demonstration, and it really is pretty amazing. It's like a still photograph come to life. But I'm skeptical that a lot of TV stations are going to make the big investment, and it is a big investment, to convert to next-gen without the FCC telling them to do it. I suspect many stations are going to hold back and wait to see how the market demand plays out. People who are involved in the transition, of course, are confident because they think next-gen TVs will make their way into consumer hands and people will see how amazing they are and will start demanding that their local stations provide next-gen content. It'll be very interesting to see how this all unfolds. Tune in again for the next episode of Eclectic Tech. Produced by ARRL, the National Association for Amateur Radio. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. If you have comments, email eclectic at arrl.org. This episode is copyright ARRL and all rights are reserved. I'm Sabrina Jackson, KC1JMW. See you next time.